0: welcome to another Palladium Digital Salon. I'm your host, Wolf Tivey. I've got my co-host Ash Milton here. Hey, everyone. Ash. And today to we've got our guest, Robin Hanson. Um, Robin is a professor of economics at George Mason University, research associate at Future of Humanity Institute. And he's a prominent and wide-ranging intellectual... He's a commentator on automation, AI, problems of predicting the future, a lot of other topics that are all very interesting. And so we want to talk to him about some of that stuff today. So welcome, Robin.
1: Great to be here. Let's get started.
0: Great. Okay. So the structure of this is going to be 30 to 45 minutes of us having a discussion with some prepared questions that we had and and taking it where it seems interesting um, about some of uh, Robin's work. And then we're going to open it up to Q&A from the audience, be sure to put the questions in the Q&A feature on Zoom. Um, we are recording this, it will be released to the public um, as we have been doing with the previous digital salons. So uh, to start with Robin, something a little bit topical, you proposed for dealing with the coronavirus situation, if, if we're gonna have sort of an ongoing uh, situation where we have to open up the economy again, but we also want to control the rate of infections. You proposed an incentive mechanism whereby people become liable for infecting other people and then have to get insured. And then the insurance companies can uh, put contractual obligations on the people who are being insured uh, to, to modify their behavior and thereby allow the private sector to essentially figure out how to solve this problem. So yeah, Robin, if you could go over your general description of this idea and and, and why you think All it right. would work.
1: And interrupt me when I say something that sounds stupid, or do you have a question? Uh,
0: of course, of course.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, so today with automobiles, for pollution, we use regulation. That is, we have rules about uh, how to make cars and, and how to repair them and maintain them and things like that. But for automobile accidents, ways that we would directly uh, affect each other. We instead have liability, and uh, that is if you hit somebody else, you could sue them, and they might have to pay. And in order to make sure that they can pay, we require people to get automobile liability insurance that will cover the cost of some of of someone suing you and you having to pay. So uh, with this pandemic, we've been so far trying to deal with it with a regulatory approach where we make some crude, broad rules about who has to stay home and what staying home means and what they can do when they go out and who's allowed to go to work. And as with regulatory approaches, they are sort of one size fits all and they don't adapt very well to circumstances and they don't create a lot of incentive Mm -hmm. for innovation. Uh, I would say this problem that in a pandemic, the fundamental problem, the reason why you might want to not just let everybody do what they want is the externality of infection. One of us can affect another one. And so the question is how best to deal with that. If there was good one-size-fits-all policies, then we'd want to use something like pollution regulation, as we do, with regulating behavior. But it seems to me we actually want pretty detailed context-dependent behavior as an optimal reaction. We want. people to go to work who most need it and then at work to go to the places of work where where they're most separated and we want people to be out to be attending to whether it's the windy which way the wind's blowing how long they're standing next to somebody you know all these detailed contexts and what's the chance they're infectious how they're feeling Uh, but today with the rule of just you know you don't go to work and you stand six feet away from everybody it's just very crude and it's not inducing us to really take fine detail into account so The idea is that as with automobile accidents, uh, the incentive from automobile accident liability is for you to pay attention to what the rain is, whether it's raining, what the weather is, how you're driving, how your car is repaired, et cetera, to be more or less careful in response to those things. And so liability for infecting people might similarly produce that sort of detailed response. So the, the key idea is we keep you locked down, but if you want a passport to leave, there's two key requirements. One is you have to get an insurance company to stand ready to pay should you infect someone and two you need to collect enough information such that if somebody else did get infected from you there'd be a decent chance to find out that it was you i.e you need to have an app on your phone that tracks where you go when maybe you need to make spit samples once a week maybe you need to take temperature readings whatever it is then other people who are also out and about if they take that kind of information too Then if they have a suspicion that you might have infected you, they could subpoena that information from you and then look and you and other people they might have gotten infected by, look to find the matches, sue you if you are close enough match, and then uh, if you are then sued incorrectly, uh, you will have to pay perhaps even an extra penalty for the fact that it's hard to catch everyone, and your insurance company would pay and how does that help? Because your insurance company will now negotiate with you how to, how to limit your behavior. Now, in a sense so it's regulation, so but they are regulating behavior. They will ask yeah, so where you're going, how often, maybe are you wearing a mask? They will want assurances from you that you are being careful enough so that they can give you a low premium. So,
0: so there's that, that's sort of an immediate problem with this uh, idea is that the more once you've got it as an insurance mechanism, the more kind of negotiation you have to do with the insurance company Yes to, of course.
1: But to, but to the, like so, yeah. To, but that's to, the whole that's get. The what behavior, we're get right. to, but that's the idea. Today we just have this really crude regulation, which yeah. doesn't give you much incentive at all to tune your behavior to context. Here you're going to be able to tune your behavior to context more, but you're going to have to get this insurance company, which I call a voucher because they're vouching for you. You have mm-hmm. to get your voucher to buy into it. So it's not just your choice. You have to get their approval. But you can still be a lot more flexible than you can be with a one-size-fits-all mm-hmm. regulation.
2: So I'm interested in, there seems to be a bit of an, a catch thing, too, here, like an information problem, right? If we think about back in January, um, had we been setting up uh, insurance companies, uh, obviously people uh, in Western countries would have had uh, less information about patterns of spread. Here are not you know, where the infection would spread fastest, what the responses would be. Isn't there a way in which like that idea essentially assumes that the information already exists to accurately predict like what insurance companies should be judging um, the insurance holder on, right? So kind of, sure, if if it was like the fourth year in a row that coronavirus happened, we'd have pretty good information, Right. right? This year though, we would be kind of, on the fly with this
1: thing, and it seems
2: like No matter how we deal with these
1: problems, more information is better, so less information makes it harder. That's Mm -hmm. true of this mechanism, but it's true of any other mechanism you use to deal with the problem. So uh, now you might be asking, well, how do we even know whether to start this sort of system until we know we have a pandemic and maybe then it's too late or it takes too long or something? But I would say we should have general systems like this all the time. That is, you should have a voucher mm-hmm. standing ready to pay for all of your legal liability, not just pandemic legal, legal liability. And then mm-hmm. if that was the general case, then of course in a pandemic, they would also be liable for that. Uh, and and then you could adapt to that situation. So so yes, of course. Um,
2: so are, are you seeing this kind of um, as a system that can be sort of permanently in place like a permanent form of insurance There's one of the things we've looked at is that predictions seem to be that the rate of coronavirus outbreaks uh may go up in in the coming decades because of things like factory farming and so on and so it seems like with this kind of form of insurance it would be basically normalized you're not just seeing this as like a temporary measure
1: well I think we should just have general robust institutions and well, we yeah, should of course we should not be choosing our institutions based on specific predictions of what we think is likely in the next 10 years and yeah. I think our institutions have not been general and robust enough until this point so I think a general a general system whereby you were just legally liable for lots of things and you had to have an insurance company cover you would uh, would help us deal with all sorts of problems that we can and can't anticipate. So this is, uh,
0: if, you, if you sort of follow this through to its conclusion, the, the kind of society you end up with is basically one where you're not allowed to do very much unless you have this kind of voucher, which involves uh, considerable negotiation and behavioral control obligations uh, imposed you know, by an insurance company, ideally, uh, or, or by any By whoever's sort of running the program, basically. And so let me give you some historical. That's quite interesting. Change.
1: Okay, so for example, today on a military base, if you are on the base and you want to bring in a visitor, you basically tell the base, "I vouch for this person. If this person does something wrong, I'm I'm responsible." In organized crime today, if you are a crime syndicate and you are bringing somebody new into it, you say to the rest of the organized crime group, "I vouch for this person. If they screw up and hurt the rest of us, I'm on the hook for that." In an ancient town. Uh, if you brought a stranger into town, most people would just stay away from the stranger and be very reluctant to deal with the stranger unless somebody in town says, I vouch for them. Right. I will stand for them. And so I think this general principle is just very powerful all over the place. We have to, if you hire yeah. a contractor- Yeah, I'm, I'm not disagreeing not, not with the principle-
0: it. It's, it, it's what's interesting here is, is how distant this principle is from how we've sort of chosen to take, the direction we've chosen to take society
1: over, say, the last 50 years. Yeah. Well, I just want to hi- more... highlight the concept of the difference, right? Yes. So the more traditional ancient thing is you just have no right to go anywhere and be around people just because. Right. Right. If, if you want to be near people, you need somebody to have vouched and backed you in order to say right. you can be there. And we've got this idea that, as a citizen, you're allowed to just go around society and you need give no assurances. You can just go on any street or in any store, et cetera. And everybody should just take the risk that you might go wild and and hurt them because that's your right to just be around. So this flips that around and says, and that's one of the reasons people are against immigration. They say, no, 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 only citizens should have that right. How dare you let outsiders come in and have that same right we insiders have? But this would like give put everybody in that same situation. No, you don't have a right to walk the street or be around anybody arbitrarily. You need somebody to stand for you and assure the rest of us that uh, you are good.
2: Hmm.
1: I mean, I would Cla- even back on the idea Hans. that in, in
2: like an ancient society. You know, the, the idea of quarantines like this, like they they obviously do come oh, up in course. history, but. You know, with, with they take leprosy, right? Uh, leper colonies or leper towns, essentially, or places where you exile those who have been infected uh, with a lot of these diseases seem to have been the normal response, you know, once people were familiar with them. In a way, like, the mass lockdown that we have now is quite unusual, uh, I think, because essentially we are not trying to figure out, like... Like, we're not Ooh. doing the firmer contact tracing. Right. Um, and it sounds like in your proposal, uh, I mean, I'm interested to hear, like, do what? would you essentially think that the incentive now exists? Anyone who is infected is uh, obviously now going to self-select to go into uh, ICU or, you know, g- get the necessary treatment? Or do you still think that we would need some kind of contact tracing so, program? I mean,
1: your voucher wants you... <laughs> to isolate if you're infected. Yeah. Your voucher is on the hook for a lot of money if you go around infecting people. So right. That's one of the parts of this contract your voucher is gonna be the most eager to make sure is right. they get to check you often to see if you're infected or you might be infected. And if you have signs that you're infected, they want you to lock down your behavior. And mm-hmm. so you will agree with them. In order to get a decent premium, you will agree for them checking you and agree to them isolating you if you seem well, to be at risk of infection. So, so no, this let, is... let me
2: phrase this question maybe more this way. Okay. Do you think that in this scenario, the companies involved with, would kind of set up the infrastructure to do contact tracing this kind, or do you think yes. that you still need a public contact tracing program? So
1: what I described is in essence contact tracing. So contact tracing yes. is literally looking at somebody and saying who, who was infected when, and looking at people and say who, who was infectious when, drawing out that map in space-time and looking for the intersections. That's what contact tracing is. Right, and yeah. it works pretty well early in a pandemic because relatively few people meet these criteria of being infectious or infected. Now, later on, there's more and more people, and that makes, gets it harder, but the concept here is, is the same. If we can record where people were when and who was infected and infectious when, then we can intersect these maps and figure out what the most likely matches are. So early in the pandemic, it will be just like the standard contact tracing. You will find a pretty close match, and you'll be pretty confident that was it. And then you could sue them. <laughs> and yeah. they've agreed so, to have the information available. But later on, it will be harder to do the match, and we can discuss how to deal with later on when it gets more complicated. But it's still the same concept.
0: So, so this, this is, I mean, it seems like sort of a reasonable proposal, given these assumptions that we're going to do contact tracing, and we uh, accept this principle of rather than just doing the the open everyone has a right to be everywhere thing, you have some like quite tight control over over public behavior. And interestingly, like the fact that we're sort of in the lockdown now is is a result of almost our unwillingness as a society to do those things, right? And Or just maybe and, haven't imagined
1: it. Maybe we, we you know, right. <laughs> this is out of their origin window of what they've considered. So I'm not sure people are necessarily against this, but I I do think they haven't thought about it.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, just, I'm just trying to get at, like, uh, the kind of interesting thing here to me is that as a society, we have moved away from the kind of ancient, well, like, long We have moved
1: away from law and liability as solutions to many things. We have moved yeah, a lot yeah. more to regulation for a great many things. And so just re- review the basic situations. Centuries ago, most people could and would be sued for individually harming another. If somebody hurt you, you would sue them. And right. the reason why that worked in the past was the legal system could typically make them pay. That is, if you didn't have money, they might get the money from your family or they might sell you into slavery. <laughs> there was right. this, sorry, you get off because you can't pay. Right. Uh, so uh, we changed that over the years. We made it harder to get people to pay. And we also made it harder to find people and catch them. So we introduced the entire police system and the criminal law system as, a, as an add-on to the traditional legal system. And even more modernly, we've introduced regulation. And what in the last you know, half century or so, what's happened is that because we've made it so hard to sue individuals, we've just gotten into the habit of whenever anything goes wrong, you blame a company, you blame a rich person nearby. And we've, we've organized it so that they must be responsible. Like If you somebody hits you at, and you're a student and another student hits you at, at an apartment away from school, school is still responsible. And if you come out of a bar in the parking lot and somebody hits you, the bar is responsible. And if somebody invites you to an event and you get hit on the road on the way home, the, the place, the event is responsible. Why? Because we want somebody to be responsible. We've no longer let individuals be responsible because we've made it hard to sue. So this is trying to move back to the world where individuals yeah. are responsible for things. Okay, so that's interesting.
0: So it's like, let, let's get let's get back to this sort of conception of legal individual responsibility, which uh, you're making the case that not only have we moved away from from this, as a society, that was perhaps a mistake, not not uh, a necessity that we did that, but but uh, somehow, as a society, we we moved away from that idea, wrongly. Exactly. That,
1: okay. Yeah. I so mean, not entirely. Like I said, with pollution, I, I definitely think for yeah. say, air pollution, regulation is a, is a more effective way because it's just really hard to go sue everybody who put pollution in the air against use. So how did we make that mistake? Actually, I have this uh, great book that I came across here, The Collapse of the American Criminal Justice. And it's by a Harvard law professor who died sooner after he wrote the book. It was written like, 10 years ago. And it's an excellent history of exactly what's happened over the history of American law. And uh-huh. uh, it, it's he's not like... I'm, I'm thought of as libertarian, which some people think of as right. This guy isn't at all libertarian or right. But he still gives an excellent summary of what went wrong with legal system. And fundamentally, he said, you know, a century or so ago, most people uh, couldn't afford to go to court. They didn't have, need lawyers. Uh, most things were dealt with by juries locally. Most law right. was set locally. And then over time, the big thing that happened is we wanted, as a nation, to make everybody follow certain moral standards we all shared. like being against slavery, against prostitution, against polygamy, against drugs, against alcohol. And in order to allow the system to force locations to do what other places wanted them to, we had to sort of twist the law and twist the interpretation because people really, really wanted to make sure everybody followed the the national attitude on prostitution, et cetera. And so we've moved to the system, say, with plea bargaining, which is really quite different than we had a century ago, basically a century ago, most ju- most things were tried, and they were tried by a local jury of people like you. And uh, now basically, you know, 95% of all cases get plea bargained, and they never go to court at all. And the court, the, the prosecutors have this enormous leverage to get you to settle in plea bargaining. And so we don't really use the courts, and we don't hardly use juries at all either. Uh, most and because- go to because
0: the court system has gotten so
1: expensive. Right, right, but it's not intrinsically expensive. It's part because right. we've, we've made it a lot more complicated. We've made it so complicated that you couldn't possibly just do it without a lawyer like you could mm-hmm. a century and a half ago. Most people in a century and a half ago in the United States, when they went to court, they didn't use a lawyer.
2: Mm-hmm. Right,
1: so, uh, they so need I'm one.
2: interested um, in, when we're looking at penalties, and I, I'm not just thinking in the case here of um, like the pandemic scenario, but you know, we're, we're, we're applying right. this principle now to a, a number of different fields. Um, when it comes to penalties, for exactly. uh, be it infecting someone or or committing, like, a, right, right. a crime you, that you causes harm. I'm interested to hear if uh, the following two forms of penalties are over or underused. The first is financial penalties, fines and the like. The second is corporal punishment. Great uh, So Singapore uses yes. caning, for example. People who defend this will say something like, well, um, this is more humane than putting someone in prison for... 10, 15, 20 years of their yes, life. Indeed. Uh, what are your
1: opinions on these forms of uh, penalization? So ancient societies basically tried to use fines as much as possible, but fines were translated into other severe punishment because they could sell you into slavery. Mm-hmm. And, right. and that was a pretty strong threat. So right. once it we... Like a, uh, it could be a trap, kind of. Or they could take the money from your family and then they, that you would really hurt them. So those were really threats that, that hit ordinary people in their heart. I mean, they really cared Mm -hmm. about those things. Because we made it hard to get money out of people, we decided to switch to other forms of punishment uh, and rely on them more, like prison, for example, as we use today. But of course, you could use torture, exile, death. Uh, From the economic efficiency point of view, prison is the least efficient. And nice prisons are are even worse than mean prisons. Uh, But why do we do that? Because we don't feel we can take the cash out of people, and we feel like, we tell ourselves that we're kind of ashamed of doing torture because only mean people would do that. And so an idea of this vouching system is to take these decisions we're making now collectively, crudely, and just take them out of collective hands. So the idea is you. Uh, my, my proposal is then to replace our usual criminal punishment system with vouching, i.e. most crimes would be punished by fines. You and your voucher would make a contract, but now we'll let you and your voucher's contract ex- use all the different kinds of punishments available. You can agree with your voucher to get caned, to put in jail, to get exiled, and we'll enforce that contract. But now it's up to you to decide what punishments are okay with you. Not only you decide punishments, you decide your rights and freedoms. So you can have an agreement where you have a curfew. You can have an agreement where there's an ankle bracelet. You can have an agreement where there's some parts of town you're not allowed to go to. That's you and your voucher's contract. They can read your emails. They can trace you with cameras. You will agree to that or not, and you can agree to co-liability. You and a group of friends can all say, all of us will watch out for each other. If any one of us is found guilty, all of us will be punished. And through all these mechanisms, you and your voucher can search in the space of what will make you not actually commit crimes.
2: Hmm.
1: And so the th- rest of us can say out of it. The rest of us should not be involved in deciding how you get punished, what sort of freedoms you have or who, who you are liable with. That should be so your choice. So
2: do, do you think that the uh, fine mechanism could even be used in, case, you know, assault, murder, these more serious... Yes, yes, causes. they could. But isn't part of the, you know, I, I generally think that uh, punishment is... I think in the older systems you mentioned, there, there was often an emphasis on, like, compensation or reparation, basically. I, I think that in... I mean, particularly, I think the corporal punishment case... Um, the logic here is that there is a sort of public retribution going on. Do you think this is basically a flaw or is, is it incorporated some other way? Uh, I mean, you-
1: typically your voucher will demand some punishment. <laughs> if you kill sure. someone, they won't just pay money. They will make you suffer and you will have agreed to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm fine, of course, with the rest of us watching, if that will make us satisfied. The uh, rest of us not watching, if we'll be too ashamed of it. Uh, I'm not too concerned that they won't... Let enough people watch, and the rest of us won't enjoy it enough. And yeah, this you're, doesn't seem you're not
2: outcome-focused on what people choose. Basically, so th- this, this is like a, it, mm-hmm.
0: th- this is an interesting way, like an interesting modern take on like how to get back to kind of a common law and and polycentric even uh,
1: approach to law. Well, it's trying to take out of the collective choice the things we, we don't need to make collective choices. Right. And they aren't very good at and leaving in the collective choices and things. So, for example, say pollution is actually a problem and we're going to regulate it. We're going to make it a crime to pollute. Well, right. in this system, there is a crime of pollution. And if you are caught, you are punished. But we don't decide how you are punished. We don't decide how you're caught, all of those other sorts of things. We just decide that that's something we don't want to happen. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a, two separate issues. One issue is like, is the harm you're doing something to an individual or is it done to the collective? Obviously, right. if their harm is done to an individual, then it's simpler just to let you sue them, let them sue you, I'm sorry, yeah. uh, rather than us all deciding it's a crime. But there are things people arguably would say, yes, but, but no one person will sue on that, like pollution. So we need it to be a crime. But we, even if it's a crime, we don't need all of us to be deciding how to punish you, what your rights are, or even how to catch you. So I also think once we have a fine that's set for any one crime, we can make a bounty close to the fine, and we can allow bounty hunters to go prosecute you. We don't have to hire police and decide what their priorities are. We can just say, here's the bounty. If you catch any one of these people, bring them court, prove it, you get the bounty. And now there would be this decentralized system of, you know, which would be very uh, innovative and, uh, you know, greedy, basically trying to figure out the most cost effective way to enforce each crime by uh, trying to get the bounties.
0: Very interesting. Again, I'm sort of struck by the question of if this is so good, why have we been moving away from it? And if we 've been moving away from it what, what's, and it 's and it's actually good, what mistake are we making, or how to like what is the thing that we 've done that we are doing wrong that would then thereby stand in the way of of going back great question
1: system so I mean one thing is if you just talk to people about say caning, people right. have decided it 's immoral and bad to cane people, but it 's moral to put them in jail, and if you try to push them on it, they can 't really explain why very well. Mm. Uh, but a we've
2: sanitary just reaction kind of
1: made these sorts of arbitrary decisions about what's moral and what's not in how we punish people uh, people are also just icky about letting money be associated with crime and law and things they just think right. it's pure if money isn't involved of course they're, they're willing to pay policemen a salary but somehow they don't think money is involved if you just hire a public official to be a policeman but if you pay a bounty hunter cash that somehow makes it icky and so we've got a lot of these just sort of icky-feeling reactions to having money be involved, having competition be involved, having uh, you know, different kind of punishments available. And we've told ourselves in many ways that a system where money is involved is unfair to the poor. So I, I think it's worth yeah. walking through why this is or is not unfair to the poor mm-hmm. uh, in terms well, of I, having money be involved.
2: Yeah, I was going to um, roll out sort of something like this and see what you thought about it. You know, I think one, at Palladium, one of the things we look at is uh, these questions where you know th- there can often seem to be these very elegant policy or you know solutions based on an economic logic that nonetheless don't happen because the actual power actors with the ability to make decisions often states but not always do not have the incentive to do this and so i i think that the reason right that a, a kind of equality before the law interpretation where the ideal is that everyone faces the same laws and penalties as arisen is because uh, you know, as, as societies developed, conflicts broke out between groups or classes in society when they perceived that there was an advantage or differentiation between treatment. And so it was like, on the one hand, we could maybe give this uh, economic logic. On the other hand, I can certainly see the scenario where, you know, let's say people are picking their own punishments. Poor people have to obviously then opt for labor or, Um, jail or death penalty even whereas wealthier people maybe even for more serious crimes can just pay out bigger fines and then the result is that uh, maybe because it's a rabble rouser uh, but for whatever reason a resentment starts to occur where there is this feeling among that the rich are basically able to buy their way out of punishment whereas the poor have to face it and so despite the fact that there might be this sound economic logic underplay, it seems like when you're operating with the broader groups, a different dynamic takes over. Like these groups are not just collections of individuals, they have their own modes of interaction. And so I'm interested
1: to hear your response to that. Well, so I think what's more going on is that uh, we aren't paying very close attention to these things. So how they're framed matters a lot, and sort of the, the symbols that people invoke matters a lot to how they think about them. And People can able to invoke symbols that make people uh, mad and believe that other people are getting an advantage, and then solutions are produced in order to overcome those symbols, those bad Im- images. But they don't necessarily solve the actual problems. They just give you better defended against potential blame. So our current system is not remotely fair to the poor. Uh, you know, if, if you were, walk through sure. our current system, of course, you know, yeah. it's, it's very expensive to go to court. And People who are poor really can't go to court, and so they, even if you get a public defender, the public defender mainly has an hour to devote to you, where they tell you you should take the prosecutor's deal. <laughs> and uh, basically, you know, even if you're innocent, you, you just really can't afford to fight it. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, in our current world, we're not remotely equal in terms of mm-hmm. uh, ability to defend yourself. If you're a rich person, you can hire a more expensive lawyer. You can get off more easily. Uh, that's part of how the current system goes. So uh, now, in this alternative system I'm, I'm proposing, I, I want to be clear, the fines could depend on your wealth. <laughs> So Mm -hmm. if you murder someone, a poor person, the fine might be a million, but for a rich person, it might be 10 or a hundred million. We can make fines depend on your wealth. So we don't necessarily have to give you a blank check to commit crimes just because you're rich. If we don't want to, we can make the fines depend on that. We can make the fines depend on anything we want. We can make them depend on the neighborhood, et cetera. So as you may know today, the police pretend like they protect everyone equally, but in fact, the rich neighborhoods get far more resources and protection than the poor neighborhoods. Under this system, if you put a bounty on the rich and the poor person and it's the same bounty amount, they will be protected with the same degree of effort. Uh, Under this system, in fact, that's part of the problems actually with the system is it makes it harder to be hypocritical. I actually think the main disadvantage here for this system is people actually want to pretend to treat people equally but not actually do it. And a system that forces them to actually do it if they're going to, you know, pretend is something they don't like or it's a problem,
0: that is. Yeah, so there's, there's sort of a, a double fork here is, is you're, you're making it actually harder to, to be hypocritical. And at the same time, uh, quite directly challenging a lot of sort of our ideological preconceptions, all those sort of ick responses you were describing, those are sort of ideological responses and, and about the symbols and about the words and about the concepts used, right? And, and, and more specifically like kind of our modern liberal ideology is is the thing kind of being offended here and so you're kind of going up both against the liberal ideology right. and against people's ability to be uh, so, so let me
1: make even the statement stronger people tell themselves the story they live in a society with law and other societies in history have been police states or police had arbitrary powers we're honestly more like a police state than pretty much any society that's ever lived <laughs> because we do have police and prosecutors with pretty arbitrary powers we have more people in jail than any society that's ever had We have more laws by which our powers can arbitrarily arrest you because most anybody, if you look at them long enough, you could find something illegal they're doing because there are just so many laws. You are living in a police state. You are living in a worst case scenario. Why doesn't it feel that way? Because police states don't actually bother most people. They bother whoever the authorities happen to want to bother, and that's not well, usually most people. It's not you. Also, the police state
0: the police state is not narrativizing itself as an evil police state. It's its telling right. you that it's a, a wonderful free society.
1: Right, so if you look yeah. at a lot of features of the law, they you can see this justification that they're there to protect you. But if you actually think it through, they're not protecting you at all.
2: So I'm just looking at the time here. I think we might want to start uh, rolling in some of the questions from the audience. I see a number coming up, and uh, we can start on the ones touching this issue, uh, of, of which there are a few. Um, so Siavash asked the question, While well, this, uh, insurance policy for existence in certain spaces, uh, idea might work to minimize negative externalities like disease, noise, crime. It seems to overlook positive externalities for chaos or randomness or spontaneous interaction. Um, I, I, I think, uh, what he's probably referring okay. <laughs> to there I, I, is, you know, maybe protest, civil disobedience, perhaps this sort of lo- thing. Uh, how, how does it capture this?
1: So it's a interesting fact about law in general and regulation in general is that they focus overwhelmingly on negative externalities. Right. Uh, regulation doesn't do very much or law rarely does much to deal with positive externalities and it's not obvious why. It actually would be possible to have law deal more of positive externalities if we had what I call negative liability. So usual liability is somebody hurts you so you sue them for money Negative liability was you help someone and then you sue them for money like like so for example you introduce oh, someone yeah. to your their future spouse and later on you say yeah. are you happy with your spouse i introduced them I, it's time for my cut and if you if we can't agree on a cut then i'll sue you and in, through law could in general help encourage more positive actions but now that like as you may know if somebody's drowning in a pond you have no responsibility to help them whatsoever for most ways somebody might be in need as long as you don't do anything positive to hurt them you have no responsibility right. to help them but that's kind there's of there's no
2: basic. good samaritan obligation Exactly
1: right and so that's an, another example of the law not like trying to push for positive uh, externalities. And mm-hmm. so yeah, I would think it's, there's a decent case to be made, both in regulation and law, that we should be doing more to push for uh, positive externalities. But that's not limited to my proposal. And my propo- I'd be happy to all- include those things in my liability sure. proposal. Uh, that's it's a general puzzling maybe. feature of law. Uh
2: He, he also asks, um, so privatizing uh, the justice system uh, in this way uh, could be more efficient in some sense than an overbearing public justice system, but this has been studied by law and economics professor uh, Ronald Coes. These one to one punishments uh, and fines for pollution or tort are limited by the fact that transaction costs are high for individual parties. Um, So he's asking, you know, what do you think of this theorem and uh, this possible objection here? Well,
1: I mean, it all comes down to which transaction costs in which areas. And that's part of of designing a better system is to lower the transaction costs. So, for example, my proposal that people be required to have this app to collect information and that they could be subpoenaed information is exactly to lower the transaction costs of suing people for infecting you. Uh, Without that sort of requirement, it it would become much harder to find somebody who infected you and, and sue them. So yeah, all the way along, uh, you know, someone who understands transaction costs is trying to find ways to reduce and uh, minimize transaction costs. And that's what I've tried to do in my proposals. If you could point to a particular transaction cost and you say that one looks high and that one looks like it'll cause this problem, then I could address that. But I, I really can't respond in general to saying transaction costs because that's just you know a general sure. category of things.
2: Some of these questions are on this uh, topic, some are not. So I think we'll run through and sort of see where they go. Um, Nicholas asks, uh, hi, Professor Hansen, a few years ago, you issued a call for adventure for people inside organizations to experiment with remaking collective decision-making by decision markets. Um, So if you were a corporate leader inside a top tech company willing to experiment uh, with those prediction markets, what experiments would you want to run?
1: To me, it's not very clever. So we just need organizations who have a thing they want to know. They introduce a prediction market on that thing they want to know, then they see what information they get and they track the decisions and then they compare that to some other part of the organization where they don't do this. So you yeah, just want a comparison. I, I think
2: maybe a different way of asking this question is though, what particular questions do you think this is not being done on currently that would be the most interesting to start doing this on in terms of decisions? I actually don't think out.
1: that's the best question in the sense that this has so much widespread potential uh, it's not going to be applied in the place where it has the biggest value. It's going to be applied first in the place where just somebody is willing to try. Uh, right. Most all organizations. So I, you know, I've been consulting and I walk into an organization and you sit down mm-hmm. and you say, okay. okay, what are the biggest things that you need to know that you don't know uh, that would be valuable? And of course they can quickly find those things out. And then you say, let's do a prediction mark at that. And all of a sudden they go, Oh no, no, no. Cause that's, very sensitive topics. The topics that are the most valuable are also the most politically sensitive. And they almost always said, no, no, let's try something else smaller, less, less controversial to apply the prediction markets to. So the right. obvious thing is, just push through on that first topic. Those first topics where you knew they were the most valuable, do the markets on those, even though they are politically sensitive. So
0: so the political sensitivity, I mean, this was what kind of stood in the way of your previous experiments with uh, prediction markets in companies. Like, you have done this. You've gone in and actually tried to sell prediction markets. And and this is the objection you run into. And I guess the steel man of that objection is that uh, the, the internal kind of political piece of the company is actually fairly important to its continued
1: functioning and to disrupt this uh, could, well, could potentially be a problem. Let me walk through a concrete example so you can judge for yourself. So for example, say you have a project with a deadline. Yeah. Uh, you're running the project, you might not make your deadline. You're worried, what will happen to me if I don't make my deadline? We could set up a prediction market on your project, which would tell you what's the chance of making your deadline and even tell you what things you could do to re- increase that chance, which would be mm-hmm. good for you. However, most managers correctly do the following analysis. They say, if I fail, my favorite excuse is gonna be the following. I'm gonna say, we were going along fine until at the last minute, somebody something came along out of left field. No one could see it coming. It'll never happen again. So there's no need to hold anyone responsible. And in fact, in most organizations, that's exactly what they do when, when, they, when deadlines fail. Their boss wants them to have the same excuse because they'll also be blamed if they are blamed for failing the deadline. So if you set up a prediction market, that takes away your favorite excuse. You can no longer say it came out of left field at the last minute, no one could have seen it coming because they will have seen it coming for months because that's what the prediction market will have said. So yeah. you calculate and say, no, I would rather have a better excuse if I fail than have better information to prevent a failure. So That is the kind of reason that, that people don't want the prediction markets is that their personal mm-hmm. political safety is better ensured by, not, by being in more control of the information. Here's another way to say it. Right. Imagine in the C-suite at the top level of a company, there is an autist, someone on the spectrum, who is yeah. very smart about the business, they understand a lot of things, but they have no political savvy. They right. have no idea what will offend anyone when they say it. <laughs> they have no idea what the dogma is and what they're supposed to kowtow to or what would be sensitive. They just blurt yeah. out whatever pops into their head, when it pops out, when it seems relevant to the topic. It's a yeah. strong, clear prediction. This person will not last in the C-suite. They may right. become a useful advisor to somebody else there who will you know, hear them in private and then decide how to use the information, but they will not be allowed to just blab. A prediction right. market is exactly such an executive. They just sit out there in public and say whatever pops into their head. No one can c- control them. No one can make them fit the agenda. No one can make them stay with the and And, and they're
0: inherently uh, public. It's yes. very difficult to have a private prediction market.
1: It's much harder and it reduces the value. And yeah. then it's harder to make the excuse why you're making it private, of course.
0: Right. So another issue with prediction markets then, so that's, that's the like, it, it, Yeah, it's like that uh hypothetical c-suite executive who just says you know whatever seems to be true uh, and thereby gets purged but there's the other side which is sort of the duality between death predictions and an assassination market which is to say like let's say we're talking about your deadline and you know someone who doesn't like you predicts that your deadline is not going to be met and then subtly subtly sabotages the work in some undetectable way and, and makes a big payout because that
1: was actually uh, an unlikely bet at the time they made it. So it's, it's straightforward to do that. In the organization, you just make sure everybody who could potentially hurt the project has a positive, it starts out with a positive stake and can't bet it below zero. Uh, make, everybody has $10 if the project succeeds, $100 if the project succeeds. They can okay. bet their $100 down to 50 or down to 20, but not below zero. Now everybody still wants the project to succeed, right. they, but they can they, they still can, reveal their information.
0: They can sell, but they can't short basically.
1: All uh, right. They can't go to a negative stake, but yeah. varying positive stakes is plenty enough leverage to let them express their information.
2: Interesting, great. Okay, that's that's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I see um, Sam Hammond has a question here relating again back to the earlier discussion. Uh, so insurance markets, uh, Sam says, tend to separate or de-pool. So high-risk types get charged high premiums, low-risk types get low mm-hmm. premiums. Uh, equality under the law, in contrast, presupposes some kind of enforced pooling equilibrium. So Sam asks, is uh, your voucher proposal, Robin, consistent with the concept of equality under the law?
1: Well, we do not actually have equality under the law. I'm sorry. If you actually look at how the system actually works, it is not equal. So we have various surface pretenses of equality, but it's not actually equal. But but do
2: you think that the concept is still useful, or are you saying, let's jettison this completely, let's use a better... Uh, concept, even.
1: Well, uh, there are certain concepts of equality here that, that are, do apply. That is, uh, you know, if there's a judge hearing two sides of the case, then they will decide this case regardless of other details about you that they don't know. Your wealth, of course, might have influenced what they see. Even today, that means that your wealth influences the outcome. But And in this world, it might. But I think that's okay. So um, I, in fact, think it... If we understand that, in fact, in the real world, pe- people's wealth matters to their outcomes and that we mm-hmm. can't take that all away, uh, we'd like a system where we get more efficient, better outcomes rather than trying to pretend yeah. that wealth doesn't matter
0: right, and so that's that's a general principle of looking at the world as it actually is turning out sort of separate from our idealizations that we try to apply to it and and try to work with that more realistic picture to make it more efficient rather than uh, having sort of
1: much more naive idealisms. So, I mean, one thing that that people do bring up, and I will I'll mention here, is people who are especially poor will won't get as good of terms with their voucher. They will have to accept stronger punishments, more limits on their freedom, uh, more invasions of their privacy, more co liability. If you feel sorry for them, you could subsidize that. We could give you know a sub a bout, voucher subsidy to people, uh, but there's still be this issue. Some people would like say who have just been an ex con. <laughs> recently or had several ex-con events, they will look as especially bad risks to a voucher. And then the vouchers will say, no, 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 I need really good assurances. So for example, even someone who's had a lot of crime convictions recently, we might put them on a logging farm in northern Minnesota where they can't go off the farm except once a week to town and under escort. And in that situation, they could probably get a low premium because the voucher is assured much more closely that uh, they couldn't hurt people. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that would happen to people who have really bad records. Uh, yeah. Is that terrible? I mean, if you feel somewhat sorry, you could help give them money. But but maybe we should know why we're giving money and know who we feel sorry for. We don't necessarily have to feel sorry with everyone who's poor. We, there's going to be this concept of the deserving poor that we are more willing to help than the others. Mm.
2: I, I guess the way that, um, you know, you're critiquing... Equality of the laws that currently exist would be something like you know a fi- uh, or a thousand dollar fine for someone who earns twenty a year versus uh, two hundred thousand a year uh, is obviously hitting them in different ways. Uh, five years in prison if you're twenty five versus if you're ninety hits in different ways. Uh, it sounds like what you're saying is something like you know the cost to the person should be the same, but for different people in order to feel that impact the same way. The actual penalty has to be different. Uh, Would that be correct?
1: I'm certainly saying we can vary the fine in order to make rich people equally discouraged from things as poor people, if that's what Mm -hmm. you want. It's not actually obvious that's what you want, but if that's what you want. So for example, for parking, right? What should be the fine for a parking violation? Well, if you think that we just want to make everybody not do a parking violation, you say, well, we need to increase it for the rich so that they don't violate parking. But if you say, you know what, this parking spot just has a value And if they're willing to pay a high enough price to get the parking spot, well, let them pay and take the parking spot. I mean, in general, in society, we have lots of products that we let rich people buy more of than poor people. So uh, for any one thing the law is trying to discourage, we just have to ask ourselves, is this the sort of thing we wouldn't mind letting somebody buy if it was just an open market for it? or? is this the sort of thing we wanna make sure rich people are equally discouraged? If we want that second equal discouragement, we can do it through raising the fine.
0: So uh, I've I've got a question from Jeff Anders. I think it's Jeff Anders, but uh, Jeff. Um, Given a lack of robustness among many current institutions, especially as revealed by this coronavirus situation, um, you could imagine this solution being prohibitively difficult for current insurance companies and and just our society in general to, to implement. Uh, do you have an estimate of like how skill intensive this solution would be to actually transition to this other uh, sort of way of doing law? How hard would that actually be institutionally? I,
1: mean, I think over, overwhelmingly the limit is regulatory and legal. Right. But, but is-
0: even like, like the regulatory inertia itself is is a matter of like state capacity, like the ability to actually change well, how we're doing yeah. things.
1: I mean the question is were you willing to just delete regulations without you know going through a big calculation of which ones you want to keep? You could just delete a whole bunch of regulations. So mm-hmm. a lot of these markets existed well before most of the modern regulations. You right. Know, they, they they were there. So I'm pretty sure if you allowed if, if you required these sort of insurance before you could leave lockdown and you allowed insurance companies to price as they wish and to offer what they wish, I'm sure they will offer the product quickly. They will, of course be uncertain about the risk and they will add a buffer onto their prices in order to, to compensate for the things they aren't very sure of. But you know, there's a lot of money to be made. A lot of people want to get out and if they need the insurance to get out and it's a guaranteed market, a lot of insurance companies would offer it. Of course, some of them would make mistakes initially and lose money. Others would make a lot of money and there'd be a shakeout until they figured out better, a more stable market. But that's the nature of any new product, any new industry. Uh, There's always a lot of dispersion and Mm churn in in the initial part
0: phases. So, so you're saying that the problem here isn't so much the competence of particular actors, but rather whatever the thing is that's keeping us locked onto this trajectory of, of kind of increasing and uh, binding re- regulation rather well, than being uh, able to change quickly. Well, another, I mean,
1: today, because we all had to depend on government officials to decide how to manage pandemic policies, we're all vulnerable to their incompetence to the extent that they weren't in charge of the policy, that we didn't have to go through them and and have them decide rules, then their incompetence matters less. So- Right, but um, as
0: as a society, somehow we're we're unable to realize that seemingly obvious uh, solution, which is- Well, I'd say- It's it's
1: something like the, the monkey, the monkey trap. I don't know if you've heard the metaphor, but yeah. uh, there's places in the world where the way to trap a monkey is you take a gourd and you put a nut in that just fits through the top of the gourd. The monkey reaches in, puts his hand around the nut and tries to pull it out, but he can't. But he won't let go because he really wants that right. nut, and so he's running around with this gourd attached to it, him. It's much easier to catch. And <laughs> there are things in our society that we just refuse to let go of. That is these various procedures and processes we have come with these ideals associated with. It. They're making people equal. They're giving justice. They're you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's very hard for people to let go of that nut in the gourd so, Yeah. These so,
0: so I mean, more concretely, those ideas are kind of attached to particular entrenched interest groups that are able to successfully lobby for, for keeping those particular regulations or I'm not removing sure so much them so, so take
1: medical ethics regulation. And you know, right. I've been promoting, promoting this concept called variolation. And the main mm-hmm. obstacle is uh, doing a small test of hundred people to just check the dose response of the current COVID uh, infections. It's right. a straightforward thing, but it's been prohibited by medical ethics boards. Right. Medical ethics boards are this basic legal system that basically has, you know, they make rulings, but it, they're private rulings. There's no no precedents are created. Nobody ever sees the rulings. Nobody can ever check whether anyone ruling is consistent with any other ruling. Nobody's you're supposed to shut not even tell people that you were ruled against or you'll be punished. It's this very crude system, but there's no lobby for it. It's just an existing established thing that people are afraid to resist because no, I mean, if,
0: if, someone, if someone tried to go after that system, for example, like if, let's say there was some congressman who, who right. put in a bill, went after that system, and said, oh, we're just going to delete this, the whole thing. It's stupid, right? Like, presumably, there's a whole bunch of people who would come out of the woodwork and try to right. stop But I don't that.
1: think it's about lobbying. I think it's okay, about, it's not in general, just our attitude toward medicine. So we, we talked a bit before the whole interview right. here we just have this odd attitude toward medicine where we give it enormous deference. We allow enormous waste. It doesn't actually do that much for us, but we want to pretend that it's the sacred thing that does wonderful things. Yeah. And we want to pretend that way about medicine and medical ethics and that uh, we don't want to be seen personally as being medically unethical by opposing the medical ethics authorities.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've sort of thought about in, in this regard, like with regard to the ideological power of medicine in our society is well, medicine also consumes an enormous fraction of our industrial capacity. It's something like one fifth of GDP, um, and and when you have that many people, kind of with their interests very much tied to everyone believing in this thing, uh, it, it seems like that would have something to do with with why everyone believes in it. Because there's there's just many people with a very strong interest in that, and and this seems to be a problem in in many of these areas. Is there's these there's these there's some group of people who have become economically and otherwise dependent on society having a particular idea about a particular set of regulations and things that we do. Um, And and so to go and actually try to delete any of those is actually, in some sense, to go delete a bunch of people's livelihoods, which is politically a very difficult thing to
1: do. So I actually think that in most areas of life, there's consumers and suppliers, there's supply and demand, Obviously, the the suppliers, like the doctors or the lawyers or the other people supplying products, they, of course, would want to lobby to get various advantages, but they aren't actually usually determining the advantages. It's it's mostly the consumers. It's mostly the buyers. most, it's customers who allow doctors to have this enormous influence. Auto mechanics would love to have the same sort of influence and deference that doctors get, but they just don't. The public doesn't feel the same way about them, Uh, but they would lobby just as hard for special treatment if they could, similarly with lawyers, professors like me, other journalists. Yeah. So, you know, so this is more about this the public is, opinion than this suppliers. Yeah, so, we can just okay, consistently predict the suppliers will lobby for their own personal benefit. That just happens in every industry, but that yeah. doesn't explain the differences.
0: So, so then the problem basically is, is this public ideology or, or something, something yes. about the way we have our ideology set up is, is it's mandating certain things and, and kind of preventing us from doing others. And I wonder if you have insights on where that's coming from.
1: Well, there's general features. So I have this book called The Elephant in the Brain with my wonderful co-author Kevin Simler that talks about, in many ways, why we are not honest about our motives in many areas of life. And that includes medicine and law and politics. Uh, But I also think in the United States, we have some extra problems. Uh, in the US, we've told ourselves that the world should be grateful to our contribution to them. And two of the biggest contributions they should be grateful towards, we gave them modern medicine and we gave them civil rights. Those are our stories. We tell ourselves that we are the origin of these wonderful things. And that means that we are pretty committed to this idea that modern medicine is wonderful and so is civil rights, uh, you know, modern uh, legal rights and yeah. process rights. We tell ourselves those are so wonderful. And that's part of our commitment to wanting to perpetuate whatever those systems say they are. Because- There's
2: um, a particular instance of those that I actually want to push you a little on and see what your view is, uh, which is data privacy. Um, and as I'm sure you're aware, you know, uh, Europe over the past years have passed quite stringent privacy laws. South Korea actually has quite strict privacy laws. And we've had these ongoing debates about um, whether there is this kind of right to privacy, and I, you know, that there's a number of people now who are questioning as to whether this is the right way to think of the way data is used. I'm thinking of people like uh, Glenn Weil here, I, I think Sam Hammond, who I think is listening, has done some work on this as well. I'm interested to hear, uh, given the system, right, it sounds like if you would want to accelerate uh, the ability for these companies to properly price risk, you would essentially want data to be available very quickly. And in countries where they did contact tracing, so uh, Taiwan, for example, Korea, Singapore, essentially laws allowed uh, generally governments, but this then translated over into private organizations, it allowed them to take customs data, immigration data, insurance data, health data, um, you know, some places you're looking at phones being used to track people's whereabouts. I'm interested to hear if you think data privacy is like an important issue here, or if it's a red herring that stops us properly pricing risk in this way.
1: Well, it's the symbolism of privacy that's the main obstacle, honestly, not the actual privacy. So I, I th- certainly think we w- yeah. learned over we the last few decades. don't have
2: privacy in practice.
1: Well, decades ago, like I was writing about privacy when there was this clipper chip thing that was proposed, you know, two and a half decades ago. And back before there was very much actual use of information, most people thought they cared a lot about privacy and they they agonized about it. But what we found in the last few decades is if you actually give people very small incentives, they're happy to give up their privacy to you. And so at the local individual level, people don't value privacy very much at all. But we've told ourselves that it's really fundamentally important, like a 1984 scenario, big bad government not to let their, or a big bad company scenario to, to have information. But of course, we we're willing to give them. And the legal system really doesn't respect your privacy much at all. So for courts, if there's anything that you know that a court thinks is relevant to a case it has, it basically thinks it can have the right to demand that not only that you tell them that you come in and testify in person about it at their their convenience, not yours, the court legal system has no concept that you have any privacy to anything except for a few very limited cases like husband, wife. You know, privacy or doctor-client privacy or things like that. Otherwise, the court thinks it just has the right to get anything you know. That is the standard interpretation of law. And the only thing is they, they have the right to grab any information you have now but, but they don't have a way to make you go have collected it. So people often go out of their way to not collect information, like say have a business conversation in person and not record it in order to mm-hmm. make sure that in- incriminating information was never collected so it can never be subpoenaed. And so I think th- there's a way to sort of make us collect the information that would be useful in a later court case. Uh, current law does not limit that at all.
2: Do you think that um, we should price privacy? So for example, compensating people for handing over information or should we be treating it as a public good?
1: Well, in the voucher proposal, you choose your privacies. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is, you decide what privacy rights you have with respect to law enforcement and uh, detecting these things in the voucher contract. And so, again, we don't want to all collectively make all these decisions about people. we want to find ways to let individuals make their own choices about privacy rights and how much it's worth doing. To the extent we can do that, that's the better solution.
2: But it seems like particularly in the pandemic scenario, uh, is not data kind of a public good here? Like f- when an insurance company can better price um, risk like for a single individual, it kind of requires them to have access to data on like a wide range of behavior patterns. So the, it's not as if you giving up data benefits only you. It benefits there are you. scale
1: economies in information. That's been a large, large observation sure. with respect to uh, things. But we have many industries with scale economies. And that doesn't always mean we just want the government to run that industry. There are ways to try to lightly regulate industries to help you avoid the worst problems of scale economies while still allowing the flexibility of the firms to take advantage of the scale economies as well. So if insurance companies have scale economies and having a lot of clients that they can combine the information to a price risk, that's a scale economy that sounds fine. Let them take advantage of it. And if it seems to be getting extreme, we can use the standard antitrust price regulation things to try to limit uh, the the most extreme problems that could go wrong. But again, we have a very wide range of, of industries in our economy that have substantial scale economies. And most of them are not run by the government, nor would it be better to have most of them run by the government. So
0: Jimmy Torrey has an interesting, uh, very quick question, I think, which is whether mandatory automobile insurance or has decreased accidents significantly or what effect it has. How, like, how, how, Sort of what's the empirical record on these uh, mandatory insurance policies where they do exist? I don't know.
1: I do know that many states have chosen to go with no-fault insurance, where they say, don't even let you sue each other, just let you each get insurance and pay for yourself. And there's an argument that that's cheaper. But of course, that could be part of your contract. Your insurance company could agree that with the other insurance companies uh, today, just to do with no-fault. So no-fault agreements can be done by contract. They don't have to be done by law.
2: Uh, I see Sam has another question here. This one's interesting. Uh, Is China or America more of a police state in your view?
1: Uh, it would depend on which particular details you focused on as your criteria for a police state. Certainly by the criteria of uh, the number of people in jail or the percentage of people in jail, uh, the United States is more of a police state. In terms of the number of laws that you could easily violate without knowing it that would allow someone to put you in jail, the United States is more of a police state. In terms of being pressured to settle through plea bargaining, the United States is more of a police state. If you were focused on some sorts of political defiance, maybe China is more of a police state, but uh, that would depend on the particular kinds of political defiance. There are certainly a lot of people being punished today for political defiance in the United States. I'm aware of a lot of examples. And so, um, but of course, it depends on what you count as political defiance. So for example, if if one side of the political party controls universities and they are punishing the other side of the political spectrum in universities, is that a police state of political repression? Or is that, no, 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 the federally funded universities are not the government, therefore that doesn't count, et cetera. Mm. So, you know, it depends on how you count these things.
2: Yeah, I th- one of the things that we've been doing at Palladium uh, is looking at the actual experience that people have uh, particularly in a number of the East Asian countries, so uh, China, Singapore, other places, and it's interesting to see the responses people actually have. Um, we published one particular piece I remember, uh, which ended up sparking some uh, controversy, called "The American Dream is Alive in China," <clears throat> and uh, the the person um, Gene uh, Sir Wolf, uh, the person who wrote that piece was it, it was Gene Fan, Gene Fan. The piece was basically arguing that in terms of the experience of living in the society, um, the, the contrast between, uh, you know, living in China in like the 1970s versus now was so drastic that it can really only be compared in some ways to America in the 50s. And uh, the thing that interested me with the controversy was that America in the 50s, right? You, you had um, McCarthyism, you you had uh, the, the CIA carrying out operations inside and outside the country. There are a lot of these things going on, which if they occur in other countries would obviously be considered uh, proofs of authoritarianism and the like. And it definitely seems to be the case that when the personal experience is about times being good, like maybe this is a, a near far question. I know sure. this is a concept that right. you've talked about a lot. If I have a good job and good prospects, and my kids seem to do better, and I'm not having police knock on my door, and most people I know go about their lives okay, then I feel like I'm living in more or less a free country. But if I hear a news story about a crackdown that affects maybe 100 people, but doesn't affect most of the billion plus population, I think, well, this is an authoritarian state. Uh, so do it's, you think it's this part is of problem, our how we right. look at China.
1: It's a part of our ideology in general. It's less about China, but just in general, if we tell ourselves we're a free society, and we see those other countries and say, "Oh, they don't have they have a dictator," say, and we tell ourselves that must be terrible to live there under a dictator, but we don't realize that the people who live there, they don't experience the dictator very much. You know, they, they, he's not in their face. Most very few people are actually visibly opposing the dictator, or you know causing trouble in that way. So their experience, their lives, it's much more about the institutions they're embedded in and how they experience is there. Their schools, their employers, uh, you know, their roads, etc. cetera. Uh, sc- societies vary in how well those things function. And uh, if you're in a rich society where those things are functioning well, you could well experience a lot of openness. You know, I mean, obviously most people, they're going to focus on, can I choose to live where I want? Can I choose to marry who I want? Can I choose what jobs I want? Can I choose to quit a job if I want? Those are the things that to most people will matter in terms of whether it feels like a free society. I have never been in China. I don't know those things. I can't speak to them. But I do know that people just think they would feel terrible in a society that doesn't have their political form of government because they've just told themselves their form of government is the only free one. But it's just not true. They hardly notice their form of government, honestly, in their ordinary lives.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems to be the case that in uh, the special economic zones, right, um, which is something that we, we've covered before, uh, I and others have written about, the reason that they gain a lot of legitimacy is that they allow people to feel quite free and feel like their lives are getting better in the economic sense. <clears throat> Obviously, if you become politically active, suddenly your life isn't very good but there's kind of a selection mechanism. Politically active in a
1: certain way, right? There's lots of ways you're going to be politically active that aren't a problem at all.
2: In an adversarial way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think this near-far distinction here is actually quite useful. Um, You know, the the far tyrant versus the near, oh, this isn't very good, but I'm just going to ignore it because things are basically fine.
1: Well, of course, people don't quite realize they don't actually have that much influence over their government here in a democracy, right? (laughs) Your vote hardly matters. There's these big entrenched inertia of the existing system. You, You can't influence it very much. It's just that you've told yourself you have this influence.
0: So um, another question related to this is: is uh, like America is founded on this this myth of exceptional freedom, right? And so if we were to admit that that you know maybe wasn't exactly what's going on, doesn't that kind of upend our entire social order? Doesn't that uh, at- attack even sort of the legitimacy of our government in a way?
1: So. In some sense, the highest level question about all these things is that systems like ours perpetuate themselves and entrench themselves and get more detailed and complex and fragile just naturally over time. And unless a major crisis forces it to reform and simplify, this is just the natural progression. So the natural progression of empires all through the last many thousands of years has been for empires to rise and fall. And part of the dynamics of falling is that they separate into these different classes and entrenched interests with more veto powers and more uh, you know, complexity, which becomes more fragile. So a very basic question about our society is we've been stable and comfortable and rich for a long time. Our systems have been getting more complicated and more fragile and more uh you know locally dependent with local veto players without the rest of us influencing and how much when will we pay a cost for that is basically a key question so mm-hmm. so places like china and south korea they have had a lot more dynamism over the last few decades they started at, they they've changed a lot more over the last decades and so they are in some sense fundamentally more flexible more general more able to make changes and therefore less stuck in a fragile situation we are seeing that in this pandemic we are seeing the cost of allowing your systems to become fragile and entrenched and hard mm-hmm. to change and hard to sort of think more generally when, when a new situation happens. I mean, it's an altruism about companies too. Like you remember Intel was, you know, all into being paranoid about change. In fast dynamic changing industries, uh, firms are focused on staying general and staying watching out for new things that can change. In very stable industries, they get very, you know, stuck in their ways and all the management has been there for well. And then as soon as something changes a lot, they just can't adapt and they often get replaced by someone else. And that's the worry we should have now. Have we allowed ourselves to get so fragile that we, do, we can't uh, be flexible enough to adapt to things like that? Therefore, we're old hat, and a lot of people will see us as old hat, and we will lose our prestige and influence and uh, basically have to change or retrench. So we got a, we
0: got a few more interesting audience questions. Um, Jimmy asks, in your vision, what's the meta-regulatory structure of the insurance scheme? Like how do insurance companies uh, fail or succeed? How are they punished sort of outside of, of bankruptcy? How are they regulated? Because there's this this right. other question of- so,
1: so, so the most robust way to regulate insurance is through reinsurance.
0: Mm-hmm. How does so that the,
1: work? So the key defining feature of an insurance company is it can pay. <laughs> Right. If, if somebody guarantees to pay for you, but they don't pay, it's not actually much of a guarantee. So the main thing we need to check for insurance companies is that, that, that they can, in fact, pay. And the safest way to check that they can, in fact, pay is that they get reinsurance that guarantees that if they can't pay, someone else will pay on their behalf. Reinsurance is just insurance of insurance. And uh, most companies in the world have reinsurance. Reinsurance is a very standard thing across all, across the world. It's a very robust and needed industry in order to make sure any one insurance company can pay. And once you've ensured that it can pay, I don't see that we necessarily need to regulate them in very many other places. As long as a lot of people can enter the industry and offer themselves as insurance companies, uh, then I'll let them enter and, and take the risk and let the reinsurers take the risk.
2: Structurally, is this a, a separate group of companies now or is yes. there like an internal yes.
1: reinsurance? Well, well hmm. but I mean, you can have it both in the sense that your contract with the reinsurance company could protect you if something goes wrong, but also make you pay a slice of other people's losses if they suffer so that it becomes more of a collective insurance. Those contracts are possible and they just choose which contracts they want.
2: Well, there seems, you know, if we're just thinking of it as like levels of insurance on insurers, it seems like you're kind of getting into a, a bottomless loop here, right? Like, who is the insurer of last resort in this scenario? In practice, it seems to be states play this role but I'm wondering if you think that's unnecessary. States can play the role, but they don't have to.
1: I I think the system will work as long as people have sufficient reinsurance and incentive to get reinsurance. I don't think the system will go that badly. The current legal system, the current, you know, criminal law system and pandemic regulation system is far worse in terms of all the problems it has than this, you know, one extreme hypothetical problem.
2: Right. Like, theoretically, like mo- most payments in practice are still going to be made well enough within the insurance market setting.
1: Look, look, we've had big, like, things like Hurricane Katrina and, and 9-11, and big cases where big insurance companies had huge losses, and they used reinsurance to pay, and the reinsurance company system has basically worked over
0: the years. I'd like to I'd like to bring up the other question by Sam Hammond. Um, He's wondering more about your normative worldview, which is to say, like, we've talked a lot about efficiency here, but I guess in the Pareto improvement sense. But are there other principles in play? What like, how do you think we should uh, decide which mechanisms we're interested in? Um, You know, if not our current ideology. What, what ideology or, or world? So
1: I've written on this concept before under the name dealism. I right. would say when policy conversations come up, many people want to frame it as what should we do, right. and I want to resist that initial framing and say, no, no, it isn't about what we should do. It's about what deals we want to make. Right. Each of us has our own normative preferences, and and we will include that in what we want, i.e. what we will try to negotiate for. But I think the primary purpose of policy analysis should be to help us figure out deal, win-win deals that we could make together that will each get us more of what we want. And that's the purpose of efficiency analysis, is in order to help us figure out what are the win-win deals. That's not immoral. It's not even amoral. It's just putting the morality in the individuals and saying, it's your job to choose what you think mm-hmm. is moral and then to negotiate and to push for the things you want, including via your morality. But we negotiating together shouldn't necessarily try to collectively decide on morality and then decide what to do. We should instead decide on what does everybody seem to want and how can we get every, everybody more of what they want, including their morality.
0: So less us collective normativity and more
1: making good deals between various factions. Right, which again is not anti-moral or amoral, it's just putting morality in a different place. Look, we all want morality, but we also want other things. (laughs) We might think we should only care about morality and should only make decisions on the basis of morality, but that's not in fact what we will do. We will make deals and choices on other basis. So I think deal-making support should be realistic about people's actual preferences and what they will actually do and only account for the only account for morality to the degree that the participants will actually support that in their deal.
2: Mm -hmm. Although I noticed this seems to also be kind of a meta-ethical claim on your part, right? Because there are a number of moral substantive worldviews which would have certain moral questions which they do not see as legitimately lying in the realm of individual choice. Well, um, you know, religious worldviews, ideological views. But, but again, I'm going kind of to not, we, we no, no, will uh, cut these. No, I'm Go saying
1: ahead. I'm not answering that question. So I'm going right. at a very basic level. I say, you're presuming we, I am talking about morality and I'm not. <laughs> when no, I'm talking I, policy, I I'm point. talking about deals. I'm not talking about morality. I'm not choosing to talk morality. I'm not accepting mm-hmm. the framing that this is a conversation about morality.
0: Great, interesting. Um, I, I think we're approaching being out of time here, but this has been, a lot of fun. Thank you so much, yeah. Robin Hanson, for joining us. Uh, Thank you for been, inviting it's, me. It's been a lo- wonderful, lively discussion. Uh, we'd love to have you back soon. Uh, I, I'm uh, available. For now. My schedule's pretty
2: open now. Great, yeah. Is there any uh, project or anything you'd like to mention?
1: Uh, way too many of them to get into, but i mean, ha- happy to come back and talk about Futarki or any of my books or uh, other sorts of radical proposals. Great, okay, all right, that sounds good. Thanks again, Thanks Rob. so much,
2: Robin. Take care. Bye.